Good morning. There's a danger when you uh, talk about something very often that it kind of become old hat and uh, you kind of forget the importance of it. You kind of forget how vital that topic is. And, um, and so certainly as we have been focusing on the gospel a lot, it's, it's easy for us. It, 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 I should say it's a danger for us that we might uh, think of the gospel as, yeah, that's, that's another topic that we discuss or, or uh, something like that, that, that we kind of forget really what it is and we forget the significance of it. And so um, our topic today is going to be the gospel once again. We've been talking about Reformation. We've been talking about history, things that went on 500 years ago and, uh, and how they relate to us now, how they uh, help us understand the faith and think about certain categories that maybe we don't normally think about. We've been talking about history, but really it's a history of a rediscovery of the gospel. And so that's why we have these banners up here. They remind us of these truths. They're all in Latin, so you're brushing up on, you know, on your Latin, I'm sure. I have no Latin except for what's up here. But um, I don't want us to forget. I don't want us to lose sight of how crucial, how central, how important the gospel itself is. And today is going to be on that topic once again. I mean, if you think about the gospel, you think about the fact that the infinite, almighty God created all things. He's always existed. He's always been holy. He created all things, including man. And he created man to worship him, to serve him, to reflect his glory. And man, from earliest days, sinned against God. Decided not to obey what God said to do. Disobeyed his commandments, fell into sin, and and that resulted in a great tragedy that they actually began to die. And so we are humans. We are descendants of those two. And uh, and so we receive, we inherit that death. We also see that death played out practically in our lives. And the result is, the result of that rebellion is that man has been made the enemy of God. The one who was created to reflect God, the one who was created to show uh, God's glory, the one who was created to serve and worship Him has now become God's enemy, deserving fully deserving of eternal death and judgment in hell. And so that's the bad news, and that applies to each of us. But there's good news because the the Son of God, Jesus himself, he he took on flesh, he became Jesus, he became the man Jesus, and and so he's the God-man, he's fully God and he's fully man, lived a sinless life, always obeyed the Father, went to the cross, died on the cross innocently, in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our sins and taking the full wrath of God, bearing that on himself and satisfying the wrath of God. He died in our place. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day, demonstrating that God was pleased with that deal, that that he had accepted the sacrifice that Jesus had made. And this was a real offer. Forgiveness is to be found in Christ. New life is to be found in Christ. That's the gospel. But today we're going to be talking about how I get that to be true of me. Because I want to be the one who receives forgiveness, right? I I want to be the one who has been made a partaker of this new relationship with God that has been made possible possible through Christ. Where I'm no longer a, a rebel against Him, but I'm considered to be His child. So our topic today, when we talk about sola fide, faith alone, uh, that's this one right here, that, that's what we're talking about is how that is applied to my life. 
how that becomes true of me. Not just a, not just an, an objective topic of the gospel that we can think about out here and can be true out here. And, and that's nice, but I want it to be applied to me. And so the question of sola fide is how do we get that to be applied to us? How can that be true in my life? How can that be true of me? And so today we're going to be talking about sola fide, faith alone. We're talking about faith. We talked about faith last week and actually for the last couple of weeks, right? We've, we've been talking about faith as we've been going through these, uh, these great uh, religious and, and theological struggles that happened, you know, 500 years ago that lasted for a, a, a period of time, uh, you know, decades and decades. They were wrestling over these kinds of things and... and um, so we're looking at the Reformation of the 16th century and talking about these topics of justification. So last week we talked about justification and what that means, what it means to be declared righteous by God. And, uh, and so we talked about that. We talked about how much the Reformers valued that topic. Think about Martin Luther and the things that he went through and, and uh, uh, Zwingli and, and uh, Calvin and Melanchthon and, and many others. They... they had grown up in the Catholic Church. They had grown up under, you know, Christianity as it was known at the time. They had grown up under that. And then as they began to interact more and more with Scripture, they started to see and it became more and more clear that what they saw in Scripture was not what they had been taught from the church. And these differences were so important that they were willing even to, to, to go to battle, theologically speaking, to stand up to the the. the the church authorities of the day even be kicked out of the church, even be excommunicated, even maybe have a price on their head that they, that, for these truths that we're talking about. They value them that much. And so last week we talked about justification. We talked about being declared righteous before God. And that topic was a central one. It was a crucial one throughout the whole discussion uh, during the time of the Reformation. It was the doctrine by which, uh, remember we said last week, by which the church stands or falls. The church stands or falls on the doctrine of justification. And we saw last week that the reformers were very clear on the fact that justification is received by faith. Received by faith. But what we need to remember, and this is what we will clarify today a little bit, we need to remember is that Rome never denied that justification was by faith. They never denied that. Faith was always a peace. What was difficult for them, what they couldn't take and what they wouldn't agree with is that justification is by faith alone. That word alone was too much for them. Faith was part of the equation. Faith couldn't be the whole equation from the way the Roman Catholic Church looked at it. And so today we're going to see how the doctrine of justification sola fide, uh, by faith alone, set Martin Luther free from his own personal spiritual and uh, and uh, mental anguish that he was going through. So we're going to look at his story just a little bit, and then we're going to look at a couple of different passages that help us to understand kind of what he went through and, and uh, where he arrived. So we're going to look first at, uh, at Martin Luther himself. Um, but before we get to Luther, um, ha- have you ever had someone, you've been having a great conversation with someone? Like a really, like it's engaging and it's significant. It's not just a, you know, fascinating conversation about football or whatever, but it's a really significant, important, good conversation and you're making some progress and, and someone walks in in the middle of it and they hear a sentence and they didn't, and they said, what would you say? Right? And, and you're, you have this debate internally. Are you going to repeat the sentence you just said? That they, they could understand that sentence, but they'd be like, oh, well, big deal, right? 
but they don't understand the import of this whole conversation. I mean, maybe it's really a significant conversation and repeating the last, you know, sentence for them is not going to bring them up to speed. And, and, uh, and so that's a little bit of what goes on when we talk about the gospel, when we share the gospel with people, when we talk about justification with, with people, the fact is that in order to, to, uh, have a proper appreciation for being declared righteous by a holy God, we first need to get a grip on our own true condition. And that's why the preaching of guilt and sin is a part of preaching the gospel, particularly when you're sharing the faith with someone. But even in our midst, even in our midst, it's important for us to remember where we came from so that we get the whole gist of the whole conversation so that it's uh, clear to us why this is such a big deal. It's my own experience in evangelism that a person uh, who doesn't truly have a, a grasp on their own sinfulness will not truly have a grasp on the grace of God. Does that ring true with your own experience? When you share the gospel with someone, if, if they don't really understand that they themselves stand condemned before a holy God, they're, they're not going to hear the good news of justification by grace through faith as good news. It will be news. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that's neat. Probably the, the word neat should never, never be applied to the grace of God in justification, right? And the reason they do is because they don't have a firm grip on where they come from. And so let's, uh, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3 real quick. We're just going to read through it. I referred to it last week. But we're going to read through it. This is a very famous passage, and this is Paul's verdict from uh, verses 9 through verse 20. Right? So Paul, as a Jew, is uh, writing to the Christians in Rome, and this is what he says, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not, not one no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, that's not the most encouraging passage in Scripture. <laughs> You know, this isn't building up your self-esteem. That's not, not, not what's going to happen when you read uh, Romans chapter 3. These are all quotations from the Old Testament. Paul didn't make them up. That's why they probably look different in your Bible. Paul didn't make them up. Uh, but it's important for us to bring them out for our understanding, for our conversation that we're having now. Because people who don't understand the holiness of God and who don't understand their own sinfulness will not value the grace of God will not value the gift that is salvation. It's a neat thing in their eyes. 
People who've not been struck with the same woe is me moment that Isaiah had. Remember Isaiah chapter 6 when he, he sees the Lord and, the, and, and woe is me. I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and this is not good for me. Because God is holy and in light of that, Isaiah sees very clearly that he is not holy. And so he has a, a woe is me understanding about the holiness of God. And we need to have that kind of understanding about the distinction, the difference between us and God. He's not just like us, but bigger. He's holy and we're not. And so that's foundational. That's foundational. And that whole understanding and that thought, that was Martin Luther's plight. By the way, that, that was Luther's plight. He had become a, uh, uh, a priest serving in the church and he was terrible at it. <laughs> he, he was trying to get through a ceremony and he like stuttered and, and couldn't do it. So someone else had to stand up and finish it for him. Well, he, he went on and, and became a monk and became a, a doctor of theology and he would teach theology and he could, he could do that and function in that way. But, but uh, when he was, remember, he was a, a faithful Catholic. He was a very faithful Catholic. And in 1510, so remember, we're celebrating 1517. Well, in 1510, so seven years earlier, he had the opportunity to go to Rome on church business, visit Rome. He was from Germany. You know, and he was going to Rome. This is like, you know, I was going to say like Mecca, but it was Rome, right? This was, the, this was the center of his theological world. He was going to go there. It was a great opportunity. And when he, when he went there, he had the opportunity to go to uh, the Lateran church where, where what was called the sacred steps. And they're still there, the sacred steps. And these were supposed to have been steps that, that the faithful had brought from Jerusalem, steps that Jesus had climbed on the night when he was crucified. And so these were steps Jesus had walked on at the most cr- critical point of Jesus' life. And they had been taken from Jerusalem and they had been brought to Rome and, and set up there in the, at the Lateran church. And, and uh, so that, that was where these steps came from. I don't know if they really did or not. That's, that's not part of my point. But what is, what is the point is, remember we talked last week about the treasury of merit and indulgences and things like that were, that were available. Very few people, in the, according to the Roman Catholic idea, very, a, a certain few people had actually been more righteous than they needed to be. They had exceeded the mark. And so they only needed this level of righteousness, for example, to get into heaven. And so they got there. Well, what about all this other righteousness that they had in their lives? We're talking about Mary. We're talking about Joseph. Uh, you know, we're talking about the saints, the apostles, people like that. Very, very few people. They had this excess merit, which was put into a treasury. The church controlled this treasury. And they were able to give this merit out as they saw fit to apply in the lives of people. Right? And so that's the treasury of merit. Well, at the same time, we talked last week about the uh, about the idea of purgatory that that when when the regular people die there's there's inevitably some sin that has not been purged from our lives we still die with some sin on us according to the roman catholic understanding and so what do you do with that sin that's still on you well you go to purgatory to be purged of that sin it's it's a it it happens after death it's a period of time maybe some number of millions of years or maybe you know they there's debate about that and i'm not sure how they solve those debates but Regardless, when you die, even if you're a faithful Christian, you're going to be in purgatory. And your parents who have gone before you and your aunts and uncles and your, you know, anyone that you've lost, they're in purgatory also. And so you have the opportunity by doing certain rites, by doing certain things within the church, you had opportunity to receive an indulgence, which was basically a check written off of the treasury of merit that then could be applied to the purgatory of someone to shorten their time in purgatory. 
Okay. Well, so one of the options, uh, one of the ways to do that here at the Lateran Church was to go up these steps, the sacred steps. And if you went up on your knees and you were praying certain prayers and perhaps kissing the steps as you went, praying as you went up on your knees, when you got to the top, you would be awarded uh, these indulgences. And so all you had to do was go and pray these prayers and walk these steps on your knees and, and things like that. And you would receive indulgences. Well, Martin Luther did this. And he went through the whole process and there were people around him and, and all this stuff. And, and he got, got to the top and uh, he kind of whispered to himself, who knows if it's true? After all he had done, after what he had done, he was a good monk. And after all he had done, he had even gone through this process and he says, who knows if it's true? So he, he began to doubt even whether this system that he had kind of inherited uh, from the church, whether it was really uh, the way things were, whether it really worked that way, and he wasn't sure. And so uh, he was, like I said, he was a good monk. He was very aware of his own sin. And he uh, would spend hours a day in, in confession. It drove his confessors crazy because they couldn't get anything done because they had to sit in there with Martin while he was confessing all day long. And he, he was trying to get rid of his sin. He was aware of his sin. He was trying to get rid of it. And so he was doing that. His conscience bothered him. When he would read the Bible and talk about the justice of God and the righteousness of God, that didn't give him warm fuzzies. It gave him woe is me moments every time. And so he was very disturbed by the righteousness and the justice of God. He had no peace, though he sought it with his considerable might. He couldn't arrive there. And so we move to Luther's breakthrough, and I'm going to read to you something Luther wrote on this topic. He says, this is in his own words, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, Ten Commandments, Without, ha without having God add pain by pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and wrath. The gospel was threatening. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what Paul wanted so he's struggling, and the gospel was not good news to him. It was, it was more condemnation to him because he could not live up to it. He could not do what was required to meet the gospel according to the way he had been taught. He, he understood that he was in a place of need. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words. Namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Talking about Romans 16, 1, 16 and 17. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely <clears throat> by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely, the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. 
as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. That was a long quote. The point was, he came to understand that the righteousness required by God was also a gift of God that he gave by faith in the gospel. The gospel that before had been a judgment upon him because he could not measure up to it. The gospel that he had received included faith and certain works and he knew himself too well to know that he could ever make it. And so the gospel was judgment. It was even a heavier judgment laid on top of the Ten Commandments. And he was bowed underneath its weight. And then he came to understand that the righteousness required by God is also given by God through faith. And he was born again. And he felt like the gates of paradise were opened up to him. And he walked right on in. And so that's the situation. That was his breakthrough. His, his breakthrough came at exactly this point. The righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God. Namely, by faith. And this was the turning point for Luther. This is what changed for Luther. He understood the truth of the gospel. And so that's Luther's breakthrough. Flip in your Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, we're going to start on page 974. Because Paul speaks very powerfully about justification by faith in the book of Galatians. There are many places I could have gone, a lot of places, and I, I had a list of probably 12 or 14 different verses I wanted to read to you that all, that all are just powerful, but I had to narrow it down, and so we're going to settle on Galatians and the argument of Galatians. I said we're going to start in chapter 5. That's not exactly true. Let's go back to chapter 1 of Galatians and just kind of read the, the sort of the introduction, starting in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The church of Galatia had been infiltrated by people who were false teachers. They were Judaizers. They were people who were mixing in law with gospel in the way a person is justified before God. And Paul says in chapter 1, this new gospel they were bringing, in fact, is not a gospel at all. It cannot save. And anyone who preaches any gospel other than the one Paul had received by direct revelation from Jesus is to be accursed. He's to be damned. This is the strongest language you will hear from Paul is in this book. The perverted gospel being preached was that faith in Christ was not enough to justify a person. It needed to be supplemented. It needed something else added to it. Works of the law had to be added to that faith, to that faith and then it could result in justification. That was the teaching of the Judaizers. That was the teaching of the people who had infiltrated the church there in, in Galatia. Listen to what Paul says about that in chapter 2 and verse 16 of Galatians. 
He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he says later in 2.21, if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It's very clear in Paul's mind. You cannot go two directions at the same time. You either pursue Christ by faith to receive justification. Christ alone, by faith alone, to receive justification. Or you pursue works. Maybe works plus Christ. Maybe works plus faith. Maybe works plus something else. Maybe some mixture of works. But you cannot pursue both at the same time. You cannot pursue faith as a means of justification and works as a means of justification at the same time. You cannot. You will go one way or you will go the other way. You can't mix them. And so that's very clear in Paul's mind and that's very clear in his argument. And in uh, chapter 4, Paul illustrates this idea uh, that before the gospel came, the law really led only to bondage and to slavery. It was designed to bring people to the place of faith in Christ. It was designed to bring people to the end of themselves that they would arrive at a woe is me moment. If this is what is left for me, woe is me. I cannot do this. It was to bring people to the place where they saw their need for Christ, where they understood the gift that he was offering them in himself. But these false teachers, though, they're insisting that rather than leading to Christ, the law is meant to be a supplement to faith in Christ as a means of being made right with God. And the way they looked at it, how how can that be bad? And these poor Galatian Christians, how, how can that be bad? I already have faith. Maybe it's just one little thing that goes with it. And Paul's saying, you cannot walk both directions at the same time. You either pursue this direction here, Christ alone, faith alone, Grace alone as a means of justification. Or you're going to add some work. You're going to mix it in. You cannot go both directions. And so in that context, with that being kind of a quick overview of the argument of the book of Galatians, look at chapter 5. See, we really did get to chapter 5. Page 974. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... And circumcision was the work that they were talking about that had to be added to faith in order for that to be accomplished. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Only two ways you can go. Only two options. And you people who have accepted a work of the law to be added to your faith as a means of being declared righteous before God have turned away from faith. And Christ is of no use to you. So he, he, he feels very strongly about it. And so what we're talking about here is the option of Christ... Or slavery. And he says there uh, in in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. When you are under the law, 
when you were operating under the law, you were enslaved to it. You were enslaved to the law. You had to do it. And, and it, it only beat you down. It was a standard that it held you to, but it gave you no power to do that thing. It did not strengthen you to be able to accomplish that law. But Christ came to set you free. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We have, we have the option. Only two options. Christ or slavery. Christ or slavery. And a couple of things would have kept him in bondage to the law. Uh, first of all is that they couldn't keep it perfectly. And, uh, you know, they would always be working like Luther, but they'd never be gaining in their status with God. So they were enslaved to it in that sense. A second thing is that uh, the law holds us in bondage under sin. It keeps showing us our sin and giving us no power to defeat it. And it shows us our sin. It reveals us our sin, our sin. And we become more and more aware of our sin. It does not give us power to defeat it. So that's what serving the law does. That's the slavery that, that's there. But Christ, on the other hand, offers freedom from both of those. Paul says in Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There He paints the same picture, but He talks about walking according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. And so you've, you have freedom in Christ. You have freedom in Christ. But what about those who want to add Christ with law? That, that's what the Judaizers, Judaizers were talking about. They weren't doing away with faith in Christ. They weren't doing away with Christ. We said they didn't think they were. They just wanted to add law to faith in Christ. They wanted to have the two together. And these Judaizers, the false teachers influencing the Galatians, uh, Galatian church, they wanted to add the two together to supplement, to make it work better, because surely you have to become Jewish before you can become a Christian. Surely you have to submit to works of the law uh, added to your faith before you can be justified. They weren't trying to replace Christ. They were just adding to Him. They were supplementing their faith with some works of the law. They were putting law alongside faith in Christ and they were believing that such an equation would save them, would justify them. What does Paul say? Can it be Christ with law? No, it's Christ or law. And in Paul's, Paul's view, it's very clear that it's, it's Christ or law. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You just want to have this one part of the law that's pretty easy to keep that you can add to your faith. Well, the problem is if you want to, if you want to impress God by keeping of the law, if you want to be made right with God by keeping the law, you've got to do the whole thing. And no one as yet besides Christ has ever done that. So good luck to you. It's Christ or law. And in fact, by adding works to faith for justification actually results in no justification at all. Look what he says in verse 4. Rather than, rather than supplementing, rather than beefing up, rather than making a stronger case for, God, now I'm really pleasing in your sight, not just this faith alone thing, but, but now I have this work of the law also. Surely this will impress you. Rather than that beefing up your argument, look what he says in verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. You've undone the entire equation. You pulled the bottom right out from under it. 
It doesn't work that way. When it comes to being made right with God, works of the law and faith in Christ are two opposite directions. It's impossible to pursue both at the same time. Just like Paul says in Romans 10 and verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Like That's the end of pursuing that for righteousness before God. There is no such gospel as Christ with law. The choice is Christ or law. Justification is by faith alone. There can be no merit or works or anything else added in to sweeten the deal for God. To add anything else is to make it no longer a gospel at all. It will no longer save. And Paul says that anyone who preaches such a gospel is to be accursed. Very strong language. So what does that faith look like? Faith alone. We're talking about sola fide. We're talking about faith alone. Now, if, if you have attended our, uh, our Bible study Sunday school throughout the summer about how to study the Bible, you know that, that a concordance is your best friend. You should look things up in a concordance and see where phrases and words occur elsewhere in the Bible. And you will find that faith alone, the phrase faith alone, occurs exactly one place in the Bible, James chapter 2. So let's go to James chapter 2. So in conversation with, with, your, uh, with your Mormon friends, this verse will inevitably come up when you preach the gospel. When you talk about faith alone, this verse uh, will come up from uh, James chapter 2. Look at, look at verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So we have a little bit of a quandary that we need to deal with. That's on page uh, uh, 1012, 1012, if you're using the pew Bible in front of you. That verse there, your, your Mormon friends will know. They'll know that verse. If you talk to missionaries, they will know that verse, and it will be used against you in, in this conversation, particularly if you've been preaching faith alone. But let's, let's start the, the, the conversation back up in verse 14. Context is king. We talked about that in our Sunday school class also. Go back up to verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, some of your versions, two versions in particular, don't say, can that faith save him? They say, can faith save him? And there's a translational issue there. It's not a textual issue or anything like that. There is an article there in the Greek that refers back to something that was said before. It's called an anaphoric article. It refers back to what was said before. And so it doesn't just say, can faith save you? There's an article there that refers back to the faith that was, has been discussed, the faith that's being talked about. It's just that those two versions don't translate that article, which, which is a, a problem and is part of the reason that your Mormon friends will bring this verse out because they use the King James and the King James doesn't do that. But he, he says there, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So here's a guy who claims to have faith. Yeah, I, I believe. I, I don't have any works in my life. There's, there's been no obedience in my life. I have nothing to, to show you. I, I, don't, I don't have any works in my life, but I have faith. Surely that's legitimate, right? I have faith. And so that's the discussion. That's the question. So he says he has faith, but he has nothing to show for it. Can that faith actually be a saving faith is the question. It's a different question than the question Paul was dealing with in Galatians or in Romans. Can that faith save him? He says he has it. He has nothing to back it up. James is is asking very practical questions. He's asking, how do I know that you have faith? How do you demonstrate that you have faith? How can we detect that it is actually there? 
And the way you detect it's actually there is by a changed life. There will be a life change that comes with the kind of faith that's actually saving. And that's going to be his conclusion as he goes through this. The, uh, can, can that faith that is absent any corresponding evidence of works, can that faith actually be a saving faith? That's really, really the question. And you've known people and I've known people who are pretty sure they have their, their ticket punched because they walked an aisle, they prayed a prayer, they did something at VBS, they had a, they had a, a, a conversion experience, but they've had no change of life corresponding to it. Then no works come after the fact. But they had that experience and they know that once saved, always saved. And so since they had that, they know they're good with God. No change in their life, no evidence. You and I know people like that. Those are the type of people that he's dealing with. James is very practical. He wants to, he wants to see, he wants to know. He's asking the question, how can I tell that you have actual faith? Actual faith that saves instead of just having something that you're looking towards in the, in the past. And so he asks the question, someone will say, verse 18, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You can look and see. You can look and see that the conversion experience I had, that the faith that I claim to have, it bears itself out. So you, person he's talking to, who claims to have the same faith but has no nothing working out in their life, how are you going to show me? How are you going to demonstrate to me that you have faith? And he continues on. He talks about faith being completed by works as he moves on through the passage. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to slow down and go back and read from 14 and, and on. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It demonstrates itself to be dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Does them no good. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So you have Abraham. He believed God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How did he demonstrate that he believed God? He obeyed God in the issue of sacrificing Isaac. He obeyed God. It worked itself out. He had a work to point to. If someone said, Abraham, I don't know that you really believe God. Well, there was that time with Isaac. That's some evidence of it. That's something that he could point to. That's something he could see that the faith was real, that the faith with faith had actually uh, was a true saving faith in his life. And the way James puts it here, his faith was completed by his works. Not that something was added to it. Not that his faith was bolstered or strengthened or something changed, but the fact that it revealed itself. It revealed itself in those works. That's the issue that James is dealing with. His works were thus completed by his faith. And so we have, by, by his, his works were completed 
his works, excuse me, his works completed his faith. So he had faith. He claimed to have faith. The works came along to demonstrate, to clarify that indeed he did have faith because it showed itself in works. And so when James is talking about faith alone, when it says down there in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, he's answering a different question than Paul is answering. He's saying, how can you demonstrate real faith? And James is saying real faith always shows itself in, in, in works, in some kind of obedience to God. You can't have real faith and there be nothing to point to. There can't be nothing. You have, that's not a real faith. And so someone's going to ask, wouldn't that mean, and when you share the gospel with someone, this is what they will ask, wouldn't that mean you could just go and live how you want? Right? If it's, if, it's, uh, if it's faith alone, wouldn't it mean you can go live how you want? Or what's to stop you from living like the rest of the world? All the while you're claiming to be in a right relationship with God. You claim to be some Christian and go live like the world. Isn't that the result of believing in faith alone? Justification by faith alone? Isn't that kind of teaching really just an excuse to live however you want? But you feel comfortable the whole time that God is really okay with you when you're living how you want. And so that's the question. That's, that's the question that James is answering. He's answering that objection. And he's saying, no, a true faith, a saving faith, will demonstrate itself, in this sense, will justify itself by, by the works that are completed in your life. It demonstrates itself. So, when you're talking to a person who claims to have faith, but has no works, what do you tell them? Is the main problem, hey, you need to add some works to your faith? Is that the problem? No, because that's where the Judaizers were. That's where the people in Galatia, fooling the church there, that's where they were. You need to add something to your faith to make it work. True faith, the issue, if, if, if someone claims to have faith and has a life that belies that faith, the issue is not the life that belies that faith. The issue is they don't have true saving faith. They don't really trust in God. They, don't, they haven't come maybe to that, that woe is me moment where they understand they have no hope before God except Jesus alone. That's the problem is the faith. That's the issue. Faith will work itself out in your life. And Luther knew that. Luther was challenged by this, by the way. He was, he was challenged by other reformers who said, Luther, yeah, he just, he, he, he believes you can trust Christ and go live how you want. That's what Luther teaches. And Luther kind of took that on the chin and he was like, well, I, that's not true. That's not true. But he knew how dangerous it was, how, how easy it is for us in our minds and our desire is to then add the list together of what then we must do to make it count before God. And pretty soon we're over here in the Judaizers camp. We've walked away from Christ. And so he was willing to be maligned in that regard to, to, to be very careful about how he talked about works. Not because he didn't believe they were true. Not because he didn't believe that what James was saying here was true. He, had a, he, he struggled with James, by the way. But because he thought the gospel is at stake. I don't dare teach in such a way that someone can then take works and faith and add them together and come up with a new gospel even just in their own mind, because there is no new gospel. Justification 
is by faith alone. We are justified before God. We are declared righteous before God because of what Jesus did. Administered to us through our faith alone. And that's very different from what the reformers had been taught when they were growing up. And so we come away from our discussion today with a challenge to look to Christ alone, by faith alone, as the only way that we can have peace with God. We don't supplement what Christ did with some work of ours to sweeten the deal for God. Faith that saves will result in changes in our lives that God makes. But it is Christ alone who saves us through faith alone in Him and the work that He finally accomplished for us. Paul was huge on this. The strongest language that you'll find from Paul is in the book of Galatians. And it's because people were tinkering with the gospel and wanting to add some works to their faith in order to be justified. And he said, let those people be accursed. Let them be accursed. That is no gospel. There is no salvation in that. And so the message today as we talk about justification, sola fide, by faith alone, is that God is only pleased by perfect righteousness. We will never attain perfect righteousness. There is perfect righteousness in Christ alone. And so what was Luther's breakthrough had better be our breakthrough also, that we finally look away from ourselves. That's what faith is, by the way, looking away from ourselves, looking to Him, knowing I have nothing to offer Him. My hand is empty. I I can't do it. I don't have anything to give you, but I need you. And that's when the hand of grace grabs our empty hand of faith, and that's when justification happens. By faith. It's by faith. And so that's what I want us to be captured with. That's what I want us to to have in our minds. That's what we need to walk away here thinking about is that grace of God. That grace of God that He worked for us and that He gives it to us by faith alone. Let that be our cry. Let that be our prayer. Let that be our thought throughout the week. When we think about church, when we remember about church, when we talk to other people about church, about Christ, when we talk about salvation, let us remember the completed work of Christ and that it is ours by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these words from Paul and these words from James. I thank you for your work in history to reveal these things and make, make these things very clear to us where at times they have been uh, they've been confused I thank you for your sovereignty your work in the lives of, uh, of people uh, the lives in your, uh, of people in your church the ways you have brought this to us and so we can look back 500 years and, and benefit from their discussions but I thank you most of all for what Jesus has done for us on the cross that he who lived perfectly, sinlessly, always obedient, always obeying the law, keeping it where I have not kept it, also died in my place, bearing the punishment for my sin that I deserve, bearing wrath from you that I deserve, that I've earned, and he took that on himself. And, and that, that exchange, that forgiveness that's available, that righteousness that's in Christ is mine by faith alone by the open hand of faith, reaching away from myself and anything I could offer, reaching to you because I need you and you're the only one who can satisfy your requirement of righteousness. 
And I rejoice that, that you have done that in my life. And I rejoice for those in this room for whom you've done that and those uh, for whom you've not done that yet. I, I, pray, I pray that they would, they would get to that woe is me moment, that they would understand there is nothing that they can offer that would work, that would satisfy you. But Jesus has satisfied and that they would reach out with open hands, nothing to offer, clinging to nothing of their own and reach to you and trust in you and that you would justify them too by faith. For this reason, because I have heard of so many at Parkside's faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints, I give thanks for them, remembering remembering them in my prayers, that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which you have called them, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And you put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I bow my knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant those at Parkside to be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to you who are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen and amen. If you need to pray with someone, there will be someone up front to uh, pray with you. Otherwise, you are dismissed and God bless you.